RFK presents a little talked-about challenge to President Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination. Mitch Prosser from Palmetto Family and South Carolina RNC chair and national RNC co-chair Drew McKissick joined me for interviews. And Senator Tim Scott shows the ladies of The View what facts and civility can bring to a national conversation. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. the guitar riff in its thing that's why i like the intro so much not so much just to crank it up but just the guitar part the guitar part of it all right welcome into the show thanks for joining us on june the 6th this is uh the commemoration today of d-day we are 79 years after one of the most momentous moments in american history uh the crossing of the english channel in operation overlord and as we think about that today, I, I want to begin the program. I know we talked about some other stuff that we we're going to talk about today, and we're going to get to all of it. But I, I want to talk about D-Day um, because of the significance that it has and because I think the further away we get from this event, the more um, people just stop thinking about it. I mean, this is not a national holiday. No, all the banks are open. There's nobody going on vacation, taking a long weekend uh, this is obviously a Tuesday. That, this would be a really long weekend. So D-Day, June the 6th, is not recognized uh, from sea to shining sea, but it's something that we need to remember. National Review does a good job of that today. Eric Hogan has a piece there that looks at D-Day through the actions of three of Oper- Operation Overlord's bravest soldiers. Now, I don't I don't have time, and, and you probably wouldn't be interested in me spending all the time this morning in going through this entire story because it's it's pretty lengthy, but I would recommend it to you. Um, take some time today, take a little bit of time out of your day to think about the fact that the United States and its allies crossed the English English Channel with five thousand ships, um, un- unnumbered planes, paratroopers, hundreds of thousands of soldiers that actually crossed those beaches. There were five beaches that were involved in the in Operation Overlord. There were Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. And actually, Omaha was the one where the most resistance was found. Uh, Utah probably would have been second, but some of the other beaches were taken without a whole lot of, of casualties or very much resistance. And part of the reason that this happened is because the Germans had been convinced that the Normandy invasion was going to come, but it was going to come across the most narrow part of the English Channel, and that it would be led by General Patton, who would land at Calais. So they had most of the German defenses there. They were most prepared at Calais. And Hitler, who was awakened early in the morning on June 6th, when the actual invasion came at the five beaches that I just mentioned, which wasn't, it was south of Calais, uh, he refused to move his divisions to meet the actual invasion. He, he just wouldn't let go of the idea that the Americans had duped him. I mean, they, they really did pull the wool over his eyes and over the German, all of the German high command by diverting, by, by crossing the English Channel in bad weather. Um, at a in a time and at a place where the Germans really were caught by surprise, but those who crossed, who actually got over Omaha Beach and were able to get through, if if Omaha Beach had not been taken, and there was a point during the day when there were about a thousand casualties on the beach, where the high command of the U.S. allies were actually considering evacuating the beach and leaving it to the Germans. Now, this would have left a, a, a beachhead, a, a German fortification, right between the, the British and Canadian 
and other allies that had already secured their beaches, and that would have been a serious problem for the invasion. Now, it doesn't mean the invasion would have failed completely, but it obviously would have taken on a different tone and would have taken a lot longer for the, the United States and its allies to get across Western Europe and to um, liberate and, and to move toward um, Berlin if they had had to turn around and try to take care of a stronghold that was left on Omaha Beach. So two-thirds of the invasion troops from the United States on D-Day assaulted this, this four-mile-long beach overlooked by steep, blu steep bluffs fortified with numerous gun emplacements. I mean, if you've ever seen the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, you, you get the flavor of what was going on that day. It's, it's a very realistic battle scene from Omaha Beach. Um, they, and, and, of course, you had all these fortified gun emplacements blocked off on either end by limestone cliffs, and it actually became known as Bloody Omaha. The Americans first. I'm going to read a little bit of this for you, uh, but we're not going to we're not going to read it all. Uh, Eric Hogan writes: The American First Infantry Division and 29th Infantry Division would be badly mauled in their dawn landing at Omaha Beach. Rough seas from marginal weather conditions, mined obstacles on the beach, and mines in the bluffs. A seawall to overcome. Barbed wire. Heavily armed concrete fortifications beyond beyond waylaid them. In other words, it was much more than just simply holding them up for a few hours. Uh, the concrete fortifications included the deadly German MG-42 heavy machine gun that could shoot 1,200 rounds per minute, more than twice as many rounds as American and British machine guns. The MG-42 laid down a withering, suppressing fire with a distinctive sound that earned it the nickname Hitler's buzzsaw. At the western end of Omaha, the first wave of soldiers was all but wiped out barely able to shoot back against the Germans. Succeeding waves piled up on the seawall. Chaos reigned. The Americans were paralyzed, unable to mount an attack against the German defenders. And as all this was going on, roughly 150 men, and as I said, the, the Allied High Command actually considering pulling back, roughly 150 men from the 1st Infantry Division, commanded by Captain Joseph Dawson, miraculously landed on the beach where there was a tiny gap between the interlocking fields of heavy gunfire coming from the German fortifications. They safely got to the seawall and recognized to prepare an attack on the strong fortifications, reorganized rather, should have said reorganized, to prepare an attack on the strong fortifications as their orders dictated. So Captain Dawson realized that a frontal attack would be suicide, which is what he was being ordered to do. So rather than do that, he found this gap and was able to exploit it, get to the top of the, uh, the, the hills there and overlooking the beach and was able to take out some of the fortifications and open up a pathway so that the soldiers could get behind the Germans and actually win the day. Um, it was an incredible maneuver. You can read all about it. It's, there, there's so many ins and outs of what happened uh, with Captain Dawson and how he was able to lead his men uh, to victory at Omaha Beach. But you should take a look at it today, my point being, because today is when we remember D-Day. It's been 79 years, and we would not be sitting here in the freedom that we enjoy today. Um, I wouldn't be doing a podcast. Um, I probably, I mean, I, I don't know what the world would look like had we not been able to overcome the obstacles that day the incredible organization that it took to send 5,000 ships and, and hundreds of thousands of soldiers on this assault on Europe and to pull it off in a way that had the Germans dumbfounded was just an amazing feat. And we don't need to forget, as we're losing more and more of our World War II veterans, there are very few of them left. The ones that are are in their 90s or um, some are over 100 years old. And we need to remember them today. We need to think about the people who crossed that beach, the ones who are buried there um, in Europe because they gave the ultimate sacrifice in order for this to be done. And we need to remember the families of those who died there. And we also need to remember their courage because this is a, this is a typically American story. 
in that the character of the people that day is what drove them forward to be able to take that beach when it was critical that it be done. So I would just encourage you on this day, 79 years ago today, June 6th, 1944, was, uh, was the turning point in World War II, and it led fairly quickly. Uh, the Germans realized in December of 1944 that they were um, almost out of options. They tried the desperate Battle of the Bulge, where they, they tried to divide the Allied forces to extend the war by six months so they could bring in new weapons, um, and that didn't work. And so when it, when it didn't, then the Germans ended up surrendering in 1945, of course. We had um, victory in Europe Day and then victory over the Japanese. So um, just as, as you go throughout your day-to-day, think about these things. They're important for us to remember. All right, here's, here's a question for you. Could the son of Robert Kennedy and the nephew of President John F. Kennedy legitimately challenge President Biden for the Democrat nomination? Uh, some people think that he's already doing that. Now, this is fascinating can, when you consider the fact that we're talking about a sitting president who is trying to get the nomination to be president again. Normally, uh, when that happens, there's not much action. There's not much going on. But when you look at Robert Kennedy, he launched his campaign in April from Boston, and he's running a very different kind of campaign than what you normally see from Democrats. Uh, he's accused the Biden administration of lying to the American people during the COVID pandemic. Uh, he's called for shutting off all financial aid to the Ukraine. There are a lot of people who, in, in the Democrat Party, support that. Uh, he's been hawkish on the need to close the U.S. border with Mexico, and he routinely questions the effect and efficacy of the COVID vaccine, <clears throat> excuse me, and any of the vaccines, any vaccines for children. And of course, he's kind of made a name as, as being you know, against vaccines to the point that that's been kind of his life's crusade. But now he's running for president, and he's at 20%. He's polling in some polls <clears throat> above 20%, which is a legitimate challenge to President Biden. On Monday, he appeared with Elon Musk in a live Twitter space to talk about how he believes that he can win this race. He believes he can knock Biden off um, as the at top of, at the top of the Democrat presidential ticket. He believes he's got the ability to do that. And there are others who are saying that he has to, he has to be taken seriously. Um, here's, here's what he had to say to Elon Musk about the border, for example. We don't have the capacity to support this huge flood of new immigrants that's coming into our cities and stressing the school systems, stressing the social service systems for people who are already, for Americans, it needs to be turned off. And that's what I will do as president. I am going to make that border impervious. Okay, so here's a Democrat running for closing the border. And believe it or not, there are Democrats who respond to this message. They realize that what's happening at the southern border is unsustainable. And so historically speaking now, when you think about this, Kennedy is more than a long shot. You have to go all the way back to 1992 to find a legitimate challenger to a sitting president. Uh, of course, we're talking about Pat Buchanan. He got about 25% of the vote against George Herbert Walker Bush, and he took about one-fifth of the delegates. Now, that caused Bush to have to spend considerable resources to win a primary that he really should have won going away because that's what incumbent presidents do. Whether or not that played a significant role in his loss to Bill Clinton is still debatable, but there's no question that Buchanan's run undermined confidence in Bush at a critical time in his run for re-election, and that could be the same thing that's going on here with, between Biden and RFK. If you're at 20% this early, I mean, the, the campaign hasn't really started in earnest yet. We've still got Republicans that are going to be getting in the race. In fact, this week, we're going to have former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie get in. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence is going to announce this week. And North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Now, you may not hear have heard a whole lot about him, but he's expected to get in the race this week. So the Republican field is still expanding. Um, and I'm, I'm telling you, with RFK at 20%, there are Democrats that are going to look at this and they're going to see that as weakness in President Biden, and they're going to get in the race. 
I, I think this will open up the door for others to get in. Now, it's going to be very difficult because the DNC has so much control over how this race is going to go that it's going to be difficult um, for anybody to legitimately challenge President Biden. And at the end of the day, Biden's likely going to win because of the way the Democrat Party controls the primary process. I mean, we know with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, we, we can go back and look at history and see that the primary process for Democrats that year was rigged, uh, there's no question, in favor of Hillary, Hillary Clinton because Bernie Sanders scared Democrats to death. They were afraid that he was too far left. He couldn't win the election. Even though he and Hillary Clinton, you couldn't put a credit card between them in terms of their uh, political philosophy, uh, it, it was Sanders was perceived as being the far-left radical, and the Democrats couldn't have that, have that and they, let, they, they sort of rigged the nomination for Hillary. All right, we're waiting for um, Interim President Mitch Prosser to give us a call. We expect he'll be calling in here in just a minute. In fact, he's probably listening uh, live, waiting for me to talk about it so he can call in. But we're going to go back and look at what happened in South Carolina in the 2023 legislative session. There were some important wins for conservatives, and then there were some things that conservatives wanted to get done that they're going to have to wait until the 2024 session to accomplish. And, of course, the most, to me, I mean, now being pro-life and, and you know, that being one of the main things that drives me toward political discourse is protecting babies in the womb, uh, the most significant win was getting the heartbeat bill passed. And I've said many times, and I'll say it again here, the heartbeat bill is not uh, perfect. The bill is somewhat flawed in that it doesn't go far enough. I would like for it to have gone much farther um, in terms of, you know, what what it could accomplish. Um, I, I mean, it's protecting babies in the womb at six weeks when a heartbeat is detected. I wanted the Human Life Protection Act uh, to be passed by the legislature. It couldn't get through the Senate, and so, you know, I it, it, we got what we could get. Um, and I've talked extensively on the show about what it means to be to face the reality of the political environment that you're in and then be willing to work to change that environment if you don't like the outcome. And believe me, I, <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't like the fact that we had to settle for a revamped heartbeat bill. I think South Carolina could have done better at protecting life in the womb, um, but that's what we've got. And it will prevent us from being an abortion destination state if we can get the South Carolina Supreme Court to agree to take it up. Now, that's what we're hoping, is that they're going to they're, they're listen to the governor. He's called for an emergency session um, of the Supreme Court to take up the heartbeat bill and determine its constitutionality. All right, still waiting uh, to hear this morning from Mitch Prosser. Uh, he was supposed to... Let's see. I actually had him down. Uh, here's the problem. I put 8:45, and it's actually 7:45. We won't be doing the show at 8:45. We go from 7:30 to 8:30. So I'm going to send him a, a quick text and see if he can call in now. Um, and if not, we'll try to get him rescheduled because we've got, as we said, I know Drew McKissick's calling in this morning at eight o'clock. All right, let, let's go back and talk some more about RFK. Again, um, 20% is where he is in the polls right now. It, it's, and again, early, early in the process, to, for him to be at 20% suggests that Biden is vulnerable. Uh, the Democratic leadership and the legacy media, though, are all circling the wagons here around Biden, and you'd be hard-pressed to find much coverage of RFK or his campaign, but there are many in the Democrat Party who are paying attention. If if RFK is at 20% or above, especially um, it, if his numbers get anywhere near 30%, then the Biden campaign is going to be forced to to go after him. They're gonna, they're not going to be able to ignore him. Uh, the DNC right now, and this is controversial among Democrats, the DNC says they're not going to hold a debate. And those who have doubts about Biden are really upset about this because they want to see how Biden fares 
in a Democrat debate before he has to take on Republicans, something that uh, RFK said to Fox News the other day makes a lot of sense. And that is very simply that Biden is going to have to debate Republicans. He can't get by without going into the, um, I mean, not Republicans, but he's going to have to debate the Republican nominee. He can't get by the way he did probably with just just a debate um, against Donald Trump. Um, He's going to have to come out of the basement this time and engage whoever gets the Republican nomination. And so a lot of Democrats are saying that we they need they want to see him in a debate on a Democrat stage in order to figure out, you know, can he handle the Republican challenger when it comes time? Or is RFK a better choice? Now, this is what RFK told Fox News about that uh, on Monday. I think that he would rather not debate, you know, any of his opponents right now. During the last election, during the pandemic, he was able to conduct it from the White House without doing debates. I think it's important to do a debate now, and particularly because he will have to debate his Republican opponent. There are plenty of people that are saying that. They're saying that this is that because um, it, it, they have concerns about Biden's mental acuity. I mean, his ability actually to get on the debate stage and hold his own. Um, when, when, you, when you're talking about a guy who, when he talks to reporters, he gets copies of the questions handed to him in advance. He knows which reporter is going to ask him a question. And his aides get reporters out of the way quickly when it looks like there's a possibility uh, that he's going to have to answer questions. Uh, they get him out of the way. They get the reporters out of the way. Uh, they don't want a lot of interaction between Biden and reporters because it never goes very well. I mean, it's there are mental gaffes that become obvious when President Biden is asking, answering questions rather in an impromptu manner. Um, and for him to be president of the United States, um, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable that he can't answer uh, off-the-cuff questions from the media. If he can't do that, it makes you wonder what kind of negotiating ability he's going to have with President Xi um, of China or with any of the uh, our enemies or our allies uh, as president of the United States. So in any event, um, I think eventually... If, if, if RFK continues to gain in the polls, if he gets stuck at 20% and doesn't go any further, then the Biden campaign can probably ignore him. But if he gets any higher and if Biden begins to lose support, then there's a possibility um, before all of this is said and done that, the, that President Biden will have to treat RFK as a legitimate candidate. And there's also, as I said, a legitimate possibility, I think, that other Democrats will see this weakness and maybe jump in the race. And speaking of jumping in, as we said earlier this morning, uh, three more candidates are expected to join the field, and, and New, New Jersey Governor, Governor Chris Christie. I, you know, I'm, I wonder about that. Is this his redemption tour? I mean, I, I'm just wondering if he really feels bad about the fact that he was not able to really get much traction in the last primary run. And, I mean, like most politicians, I'm sure Chris Christie has in mind that he should be the one that everybody looks to. So I wonder if this is his uh, sort of revenge tour, trying to reinvent himself for the, for the Republican primary voters. Um, I don't think he's going to get very far. I don't think there's any clamor for Christie's candidacy. Um, but he's going to get in the race. Former Vice President Mike Pence is going to get in the race this week, and he's going to have to go after his former boss. Uh, If he's going to gain any traction, uh, he's going to have to differentiate himself from President Trump. Uh, Trump's already, um, you know, run the gamut with Mike Pence, portraying him as a traitor, portraying him as the person who kept Trump out of office, which is just ridiculous. I mean, there's no way that... Um, Mike Pence, as vice president, could have stopped that process of the of Congress going through and you know actually doing the vote the way that it was supposed to to be done to certify the election. Uh, Pence was not going to be able to pull that off, and so 
he's going to have to differentiate himself from the president. He's going to have to defend himself from those types of attacks. And I'm just not sure. Mike Pence is probably one of the best men, if not the best, in the primary run for the Republican nomination. But I'm just not sure that he's going to be able to gain the traction necessary to get the nomination. All right, Mitch Prosser is the interim president for, for uh, Palmetto Family, and he's calling in this morning. We're going to have a quick conversation here. Mitch, thanks for giving us a few minutes this morning, and I apologize. I'm the one who put the wrong time on the text message with you. Um, but <laughs> anyway, welcome to the show. Let me get you, um, and, and by the way, Mitch is the interim uh, president right now at Palmetto Family, doing a great job leading that organization. It's a statewide organization that deals with a number of conservative issues in South Carolina. Um, but I wanted you to comment a little bit on the on the last, um, on, on this just finished legislative session, 2023, what, in your mind, are some of the wins and some of the losses that conservatives gained in this session? Good morning, Dr. Beam. Good morning, yes, sir. sir. We, had, we had some great wins. We saw, of course, the fetal heartbeat win um, and, and all the work that our One Message Partnership did to get that across the finish line. Of course, the valiant work from the uh, leaders of the House and the Senate to get that done and, and, and the governor as well. I, I think we saw some wins, some some partial wins, things like uh, fentanyl um, restrictions. Uh, of course, that bill is not across the finish line yet uh, to curb uh, fentanyl, um, uh, the use of fentanyl and the proliferation of fentanyl across the state of South Carolina. Uh, we saw uh, some great wins in education, freedom and opportunity and choice. Uh, whether that's the ESA or the ACE bill, um, giving giving uh, parents the opportunity to do what's best for their children. Speaking of parents, we saw uh, the Parental Bill of Rights uh, and that that moved forward. Um, of course, it's not all the way done, uh, but of course, we have a two-year session. And so um, some of the things that uh, we saw wins on defensively, I think, I think uh, curbing or at least stopping for now the hate crimes bill. And of course, everyone wonders why Christians are against hate crimes. And the answer is clearly and plainly put, this will be the first time in the history of South Carolina that we put sexual orientation and gender identity in the state code. And so that's, that's a concern. Um, it's not just a concern. It would be detrimental to Christians' uh, rights and, and uh, freedom of hiring practices and that sort of thing for Christians in the state of South Carolina. Yeah, and we need to, we need uh, to, we need to add quickly that it, the reason that it would do that is because the left would use it, progressives absolutely. would use it as a weapon against Christians to silence nonprofits and to intimidate churches and pastors and different Christian leaders from engaging in the political process. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You better believe it. In fact, just a couple of years ago, during one of the hearings, we had a senator ask one of the um, hate crimes advocates who was part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, and I, I missed a few letters there, I'm sorry, um, asked that advocate if uh, pastor's sermons from Romans chapter one would be considered hate speech. And after a few moments of hesitation, the uh, advocate, the the activist, jumped up and down basically and said, "Absolutely, that would be hate speech." Right. Um, and so that's that's what we're up against. We we've seen a stop for now of medical marijuana, but that's not going to go. Uh, that's not going to go anywhere. Um, that's yeah, going to keep some, coming up. There's some rumors, and we don't we can't verify all this, but there might have been some uh, behind the scenes deal making. Uh, to get some of the votes that were necessary to get the heartbeat bill through. So we may see yes, that sir. on a grease path to getting passed in January when in the, the legislature goes back in session. In the Senate, but um, uh, I, I won't, we, we've, got a, we've got a pretty strong ally in the House, um, and I won't go into all the details of that right now, but you'll see if that gets through the Senate, I think you'll see a pretty, pretty good chance of that um, being stopped, if not completely morphed in the house, yeah. um, through through some things, and, well, and, and there's a possibility of a governor's veto. I mean, I I, I don't know where the governor right. stands on this. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. That's right. So we saw some great wins. We saw some uh, some some things that we need to get across the the finish line, and and 
to be honest with you, we saw some things that I'm, I'm honestly surprised that we're not touched. Things like human trafficking, um, that sort of thing. Um, we've got a couple bills that we're working on to curb the use of pornography in the state of South Carolina for minors. Uh, to make it illegal for minors to be able to use pornography in the state of South Carolina. And a lot of people think, wow, that's awfully draconian and impossible to do. Technology is a really wild thing that we can use to our advantage to protect our children. Right. And um, so we've, we've got some things like that that we're working on. Uh, if Utah can do it, South Carolina can do it. Agreed. When Utah did it, uh, the, the, the behemoth of Pornhub pulled out of the state of Utah. So if, if Utah can do it, South Carolina can do it. Mitch, we've got, uh, we're going to have to wrap up. I apologize for the brevity of uh, the interview today, but we're expecting a call from Drew McKissick, our South Carolina Republican chairman oh, and national co-chair. So we're going to have to do that. But i tell you what, um, and again, I, I put the wrong time in the text. I didn't, even, <laughs> I didn't even realize that until I went back to look at it a little while ago. But uh, I want to have you back on uh, soon because I want us to expand this conversation a little bit. So we'll set up another interview soon. Absolutely. I'll thank, look forward to it, sir. Thank you, my thank friend. You. Have a great day. God bless you. Yep. God bless. Yes, sir. God. Uh, we appreciate the, that from um, Mitch Prosser. Again, um, he is the interim president for Palmetto Family. Uh, and Palmetto Family, people need to realize that that's the only statewide organization that we have, really, that is a nonprofit that's working on issues that run the gambit. I mean, how many family gets involved in opposing medical marijuana? We, and and the, the main reason is because medical marijuana is a pathway to recreational. And states that have passed recreational marijuana, uh, I, I, when you go back and look in co Colorado in particular, the author, the, the main advocate for that bill, now regrets because of what's happened to the state of Colorado due to medical marijuana, I mean, uh, recreational marijuana being passed. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of regret um, that being expressed that they actually passed it. So um, it, it, it opens up so many avenues. There are so many studies out there that point to the detrimental effects of smoking marijuana, whether it's for medical medicinal purposes or for recreational purposes. So that that's part of the reason that we oppose it. All right, Drew McKissick is giving us a call right now. We appreciate him taking some time with us today. I, I can't imagine a guy who has a much more busy, busy schedule than this guy because he's RNC national co-chair, and then, of course, he's chairman of the Republican Party here in South Carolina. Good morning, Drew. Welcome to the show. Man, good morning, sir. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine uh, for a Tuesday morning. Remembering D-Day today. I uh, started off the broadcast today yeah. remind, reminding people that it may not be a national holiday, but it's an important day in American history that we need to turn our attention to once a year. 79 years ago today, um, the Americans crossed those five beaches and made it possible for World War II to end in a victory. So we appreciate that. Thank the veterans, thank the families, well, everybody involved. Um, absolutely. I had a, a granddad uh, myself who was uh, second wave on Omaha Beach 79 years ago today. And wow. knowing how bad the uh, folks in the first wave caught it on Omaha Beach, I can't imagine watching up in that second wave and seeing – you know, so many of their comrades actually they're laying there on the ground who had just been you know, almost slaughtered in that first wave. Right. Yeah, it's been, they were, uh, uh, there were over a thousand casualties. Uh, had a, had a sense of duty, I think, beyond a lot of folks do today. So no Absolutely. doubt about it. No question. Let's, let's talk a little bit about national politics uh, because obviously we're getting into the teeth of um, the primary season. Now, many would say that's really not going to happen until – uh, maybe the fall, but there are a lot of Republicans already in the race. Uh, obviously, the uh, tension between uh, former President Trump and Governor DeSantis is beginning to rise a little bit. And, of course, we've got, according to information that I got this morning, uh, we've got three Republican candidates that are going to get in the race this week. We're going to have uh, New Jersey Governor Chris yeah. Christie. We're going to get former Vice President Mike Pence and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. I, I had, I, I have to confess, I haven't heard very much mm -hmm. about him or the fact that he <laughs> might run, but evidently he's going to uh -huh. get in the race. So, 
When, when you look at the state of the race right now, how would you compare it to other years in Republican presidential primaries? Are we about on track? Are we ahead of the game? Is it similar? What are the differences? Well, in terms of, uh, you know, how soon things begin to ramp up, uh, at least, you know, from our position here. So, I mean, you know, where we are right now here in South Carolina, or if you were in Iowa or New Hampshire, you know, things do seem to start earlier than they do in other places, you know, especially for people who work in politics because you have these campaigns who begin to look to hire staff uh, and, uh, you know, try to get the best people that they possibly can, the best volunteers, uh, the best endorsements as early on as possible. So in that sense, it does start earlier here than it does in other places. But in general, I mean, you know, anytime you have uh, a, a, a race uh, that is potentially you know, going to be this broad with this many participants, then that encourages them to start even quicker to get ahead of potential competition. So relative to, say, 2015, you know, where by the time that cycle was over, we had 17 candidates right. that were actually in the race. Right. Uh, we're about on par with where we were then. I mean, right now, it looks like we have about potentially 11 candidates that are going to be in this race. Um, you know, my bet was eight. I think we're going to be beyond that now, I think especially with those who are looking at getting in this week. Um, so, you know, in that sense, we're, we're probably about right where we would expect to be time-wise, just in terms of candidate hiring and activity. You know, I, I want to I talk for a minute about approach as a candidate. Uh, you know, obviously Trump is, is a take-no-prisoners, uh, go-after-everybody uh, candidate we we know t- calling uh, Governor DeSantis Ron DeSanctimonious and, and nicknaming everybody. Um, and then you have DeSantis, who seems to be more of a straightforward, no-nonsense, this is what we're going to do, this is what we said, this is how it's going to be. Um, I, I was uh, in a small group meeting with him earlier this week, and I was kind of fascinated by his style being so straightforward and matter of fact without a lot of hyperbole, just a lot of strong statements about who he is and what he plans on doing. Mm-hmm. And then you have Tim Scott. And I'm going to play, uh, before the program ends today, a, a portion of Tim Scott's appearance on The View um, on Monday because I, I was fascinated by how facts, and, and this is what I put in the introduction, facts and a and a a firm but non-combative style can communicate mm-hmm. in a hostile environment. I mean, he owned mm-hmm. that debate on The View, and he did it without mm-hmm. insulting anybody. He just was pouring out, and it was, and of course, as an African-American, for him to be able to talk about the progress of African-Americans, it was hard for those ladies on The View to come up with um, a lot of things to say back to him, even though they were they were trying to do that. Um, it, is there, I guess I'm asking, is there a lane for that kind of presentation that doesn't rely so much on vitriol, but it relies a lot on facts and winsomeness to try to get the nomination? Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Uh, and, you know, and, and Senator Scott, you know, I've said this for years, is, is a very, very good communicator in terms of conservative principles and values. Right. In other words, can can communicate a lot of the things that we believe as conservatives, uh, you know, in a way that uh, is easier for some people to see is directly relevant to their daily lives and what they care about. Um, and of course, candidates in general all have their own personal styles. Uh, and that, that, you know, and obviously they work better when their styles fit their personalities because it seems more authentic. Right. You know, I mean, so this, that was one of the things and we talked about this before, back in you know 15 and 16. You know what what did and what enabled you know uh, Donald Trump as a candidate to best 16 other potential you know uh, very well experienced you know Republican candidates. And right. I would argue one of those things was he seemed very authentic in, in a world that was very plastic. You know in terms of how candidates are packaged and presented. You know so being authentic to who you are is important for any candidate. You know. Uh, he's very authentic who he is in his style and how he, how he you know, campaigns, how he governs. Uh, same thing with Senator Scott, very authentic to he who he is and his personality and how he gets along with people. Right. Uh, and in terms of, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis, I, I think that's the same thing. That's how we've seen him govern there. And there are going to be very different styles uh, in how you sell. And so at some point, 
sometimes how you sell what you believe. I mean, these, these folks believe pretty much the same thing would govern, I would say, probably pretty much in a lot of ways the same way. But uh, the style that they will use uh, has a lot to do with how they can sell uh, to the different, you know, let's say, you know, political markets that we have to tap in order to actually right. you know, be victorious next November. Right. Well, let's uh, let's drag out the crystal ball here and uh, take a look at, <laughs> you know, assuming that um, things pretty much remain the same, that there's no major gaffe mm -hmm. between uh, mm -hmm. Trump or DeSantis. Uh, does this thing at this point look like it's going to come down to a fight between those two? Does that most people have said before everything got started? Well, mm -hmm. it's going to come down to Trump DeSantis. Uh, does it still mm -hmm. appear to be that way today, even though we've got three more people getting in the race this week? Well, you know, that's one of those things where, yeah, you're looking to get me in trouble now, Tony. You know, I've got <laughs> my role now. Well, I, I know. Uh, but, but I, I mean, I, I'm not saying endorse anybody <laughs> or saying that no, there are people that don't have a chance. I'm just saying that the political sure. environment within the party mm -hmm. seems to be moving toward elevating those two. Now, mm -hmm. any one of them, I mean, who well, knows what's going to happen when Chris Christie gets in. He's got a, a mm -hmm. pretty volatile approach himself. Uh, Mike mm -hmm. Pence is mm -hmm. obviously going to have another lane. So, But, but it just seems to me well, that we're headed to that showdown well one thing one thing that you also have to look at is is the rules of the road right so in other words there, there are structural things here that you have to look at so for instance you know this is a nomination fight which means you have 50 different states uh and several territories which have a number of delegates that you know and they have to get a majority of the delegates assigned to them when we get to the convention next year how do they do that well the delegate rules are different uh in every state and you know, generally speaking, about half the states around the country have what are known as winner-take-all rules. So that's what we have here in South Carolina. Right. Uh, it's three delegates per congressional district, and the rest of our 50 delegates are elected statewide. Uh, and so the person who wins gets one more vote than any of the other candidates in each district and also statewide is going to win all the delegates. Now, that format benefits a candidate with what I would call the highest floor of support. Uh, and the more that the pie gets divvied up into smaller and smaller pieces with more candidates, right. uh, it definitely benefits the candidate with the highest floor of support. Um, now, when you get into the other half of the states, generally, you've got what are known as proportional rules. So, you know, if you get 15% of the vote, you get 15% of the delegates. Uh, and which is why you don't see, in some cases, as much competition in those states because candidates figure, you know, well, if I have to spend a whole lot of money just to get three or four or five more percent of the vote, is it going to benefit me that much? It's one of the reasons why we have winner-take-all rules here in South Carolina to get the candidates to come down here. Um, but again, structurally, those rules generally favor candidates with the highest floor of support. Yeah, and, and that's a big plus, obviously, for President Trump uh, because of his, his name recognition and, uh, and support within the base of the party. Uh, and you have the other candidate. The, the question is, how long do the other candidates stay in the race? Right. That's the real question. That's right. You know, we can say we've got 11 next week or week after next. Do you have 11 by the time you get to January 1st? That's the real question. Well, how and, much does this stuff get divided up? And and does does somebody break out of the pack in a surprise mm -hmm. move? I mean, we've seen that mm -hmm. before. Um, we've seen, mm -hmm. uh, for example, I was trying to, to think back where candidates just really shocked in Iowa or in New Hampshire, uh, and then order kind of got restored. I mean, I think a lot of people thought George W. Bush was going to waltz mm -hmm. all the way to the nomination. And of course he mm -hmm. ran into, uh, John McCain gave him a real run, right. at least at the beginning. Right. And so we, right. we don't, we, it, at this point. Uh, it's early enough that someone like Senator Scott or someone like uh, Ambassador Haley or any of the others that are in the race could assert themselves in a way that is surprising because of their organization. Uh, same thing with yeah. Ted Cruz. I mean, I think Ted Cruz had such a, uh, a good organization at the beginning of his run that he really posed a threat to President Trump, mm -hmm. the only threat, uh, just through the strength of organization in some of the early states, well, you know. Well, well, the other issue you have is the calendar. So, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are going to be in early to mid 
uh, January. They still have not finally settled those dates yet, a little bit of a tiff between those two states, but they'll be in January. Uh, and uh, you're going to have uh, Nevada uh, on the first Tuesday of February. We will have our primary toward the end of February. Um, no other state can have a primary or caucus prior to March 1st. Right. After March 1st, first Tuesday in March, you have pretty what's known as Super Tuesday. And basically 10 to 15 states are probably going to have their primaries on the same day. Yeah. So it's effectively what that means is for these candidates to have to show their wares and campaign in the four early states. And then after South Carolina, probably half the field is going to drop out. Yeah. Definitely after Super Tuesday, because the point is they can't all afford to be on TV in 10, 15 states at one time. Right. That's what's going to win in the field. Well, and the debate uh, rules that have been set forth by the RNC right. um, are going to yep. call some people down, probably. I think it's they've got to have 1% in a poll, what, 90 days prior to the debate? Uh, they've got to have so much well, in fundraising, yep. something like that. 40,000 donors, individual donors nationwide. Right. And I think the number is the minimum, I believe, is 200 or 250 in, in each state at least, 40,000 nationwide, and an average in the polls. Um, and that will go up. So a month later, there'll be the debate at the Reagan Library out in California. And I believe the number will be, you know, 2% on average in the polls and 50,000 individual donors you right. know, nationwide. Right. Uh, because the point is, we, they have to, we have to do something to encourage them to build a small donor financing base, because without that, they will not be able to win the White House. So this is you know, access to the debate stage is what we use as an inducement to get them to build that donor base, because, again, without that, we can't win. Final question. Were you, um, I, I guess, satisfied with the result of the debt ceiling debate? I don't think any conservative is 100% satisfied, obviously. But, I mean, honestly. That's a big Kevin, word. Well, it is. Kevin McCarthy yeah. came out and was able to put pressure on the White House. When, when Biden said he was not going to negotiate, McCarthy forced right. him into a negotiation. I think that's a win. Right. That's, I mean, look, we're having a conversation. That, the difference between now and, say, several months ago is we're having a conversation now about how much and how are we going to cut not how much more are we going to spend. Right. That's that's a total totally total change in the narrative. Uh, now beyond that, you know, in terms of the details, okay, what did happen? Well, so we managed to cut 1.3 trillion over 10 years. Yeah. Well, relative to what we're spending, that, that ain't huge, but it is in the right direction. Uh, and we managed to reintroduce the idea of you know working for welfare benefits as a requirement versus right. you know. For the first time since Gingrich, the Gingrich, you know, days in, in the uh, in, in the Congress, um, that's a change in the conversation. Uh, you know, and and look, it's and I've said a lot, and I've, I'll continue to say this because it's true. We can't have for the people out there whose votes we're trying to attract for them to believe that the biggest difference between the two parties is one wants is happy to go over the cliff at ninety miles an hour, uh, but the other group just wants to slow down to thirty miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> the destination's right. the same. Right. At some point, somebody has to jerk the wheel, and the public needs to see that there is a group of people that represented by our party that we do believe we need to grab the wheel. We need to make a change in direction. Now, we can argue over how soon, how fast, how radical, but if that direction does not change, we know what the end destination is. Austerity measures that are that nobody's going to like. Uh, that's, that's right. Gonna, that's going to tax increases. Exactly. Well, listen, thanks. Right. You've given us a lot of time this morning. We look forward to the first Tuesday of every month, our conversation with you. Thanks for your leadership yes, in South Carolina and on the national level. Now, congratulations on yes, getting sir. reelected as South Carolina chairman. I should have started with that. Thank you. Uh, that was a great win. <laughs> and we'll look forward to next Tuesday's conversation. God bless you. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Drew McKissick, who is the chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party and the national co-chair of the Republican National Committee. Um, so we appreciate his time this morning. All right, I wanted to spend some time talking about Senator Scott. We've already talked about uh, the candidates and, and where uh, what may happen in the Republican primary. I mean, again, we're, we may not have 17, but as uh, Drew McKissick said, we, he, he was thinking we wouldn't get past eight and already at the end of this week, we're going to be up to probably 11 candidates in the Republican primary. Um, and and it's, it, I'm hopeful that, can, that the candidates will, that someone will emerge as the primary competition 
for um, former President Trump. I mean, I, I think it's obvious at this point, unless there's some major revelation or something to change the circumstances, and of course, poli- politics and philosophy, well, not philosophy, but political fortunes can change in a very short period of time. So it's possible that something could come out or something could cause Trump's base to erode, but it's not likely. And so it's going to come down to, of all the contenders that are in the race, at the moment, it seems that Governor DeSantis has the most momentum to challenge former President Trump for the nomination. But that could change between now and January um, as these different campaigns get organized in the early states and begin uh, to make a difference, perhaps, in the polling. One thing, Senator Scott, and of course he's a favorite, one of the favorites here in South Carolina, along with Ambassador Nikki Haley. There are a lot of South Carolinians, uh, particularly in the Republican Party, uh, who like both of these candidates. But Senator Scott has really carved out a niche for himself in that, if you know, this old adage, nice guys finish last, Senator Scott believes that you can still be a nice guy and go out and run a campaign that's forceful with facts and yet uh, stay away from some of the vitriolic uh, conversations, some of the uh, nastier exchanges, and, and actually win people over by being firm in what you believe and being able to communicate it in a way that's winsome. And I think a good example of this happened on The View this week. Now, this is kind of a long um, clip here. It's about three and a half minutes, but I think it's something that we need to hear because I hold it out to you as an example of how Republicans can have the information at their fingertips and push back against left-wing attacks and yet remain uh, some uh, winsome in the way that they do it. I, as a Christian, and this is what fuels Senator Scott, uh, his Christianity, his relationship with Christ is probably the strongest among the candidates. I mean, I, that, that, you know, Mike Pence, of course, too, has a very strong relationship. His, his Christianity is something that's very important to him. Hearing Governor DeSantis, I hear a lot of conversation from him about his faith and what drives him um, for public office and the values. Where do these values come from? I actually ask him that question and um, in an uh, opportunity that I had to, uh, to be in a small group meeting. I said, look, um, you, you talk about all these great values. Where are these values coming from? What are they rooted in? How can we know that you're going to hold on to them? And he talked about his faith, his faith in Christ. I think that's very important. And I want you to listen to Tim Scott's response um, to the ladies of The View who tried to draw him in to a question about systemic racism in America and how he dealt with that. Here we go. You have indicated that you don't believe in systemic racism. What is your definition of systemic racism? Let me answer the uh question that you've answered or does it even exist in your mind let me uh, answer the question this way one of the things i think about and one of the reasons why i'm on the show is because of the comments that were made frankly on this show that the only way for a young african-american kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule that is a dangerous offensive disgusting message to send to our young people today that the only way to succeed is by being the exception i will tell you that if my life is the exception uh, I can't imagine. But, I can't. But, it is. but it's not actually. Here's here's. It's been here's 114 my, years. Yeah. So so the fact of the matter is we've had an African American president, African American uh, vice president. We've had two African Americans to be secretaries of the state. Uh, in my home city, uh, the police chief is an African American who's now running for mayor. The head of the Highway Patrol for South Carolina is an African American. Still in, 19, in 1975, um, there was about 15 percent employment in the African American community for the first time in the history of the country. It's under five percent. Forty percent homelessness. And fifty percent of percent of the folks get, in our community. Thirteen percent of the population. You have a chance to ask the question. I know that I've watched you on the show that you like people to be deferential and respectful. So I'm going to do the that same is thing. True. So here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest the fact of the matter is that progress in America is palpable. It can be measured in generations. I look back at the fact that my grandfather, born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, when he was on a, on a sidewalk 
a white person was coming, he had to step off and not make eye contact. That man believed then, with some doubt now, in the goodness of America, because he believed that faith in God, mm -hmm. faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for his kids would unleash opportunities in ways that you, you cannot imagine. Every kid today can look, just change the stations and see how much progress has been made in this country. ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, CNN, Fox News all have African-American and Hispanic hosts. So what I'm suggesting is that the yesterday's exception is today's rule. And for us to so suggest... America has met its promise. No, of course, the, the concept of America is that we are going to become a more perfect union. But in fact, the challenges that we face 50 years ago and 60 years ago should not be the same challenges that we face today. Now, to me, this is one of the most important interviews. I'm, I'm going to cut it off right there because they go on for a little bit longer. He talks a little bit about um, uh, HBUs, historically black universities, and how education is the key to people having opportunity and how he was able to uh, fund HBUs uh, and push for the funding of, of historically black universities. And this turning out a lot of African-American graduates that are taking, doing great things in, in the country, great things in our culture and society. So he's making the defense. I think one of the most important things he says is that you look at this generationally. I think most Americans, most Americans can resonate with that. I mean, when you look at where African-Americans and other minorities are today, compared generationally speaking, they've made incredible advances. But there are those in this country that don't want African-Americans and other minorities to see themselves as anything but victims. If they begin to see themselves as actually achieving, as actually having arrived, even though racism has not been done away with, we know there are still pockets of racism. We, we know that there's always going to be people who are sinfully racist in their attitudes. But to look at America and, and as Senator Scott pointed out, that elected an African-American president, that has um, African-Americans in every level of government, African-Americans in every level of entertainment, African-Americans everywhere making the most that they've ever made in terms of personal wealth, African-Americans that are finding jobs at a, at a faster level than they have in the past, and yes, the homeless population, if you want to take and isolate some statistics and say, okay, 40% of uh, homeless people are African-American, but does that nullify the advantages, the, the, the progress that African-Americans are making in all these other areas? That's what Senator Scott is talking about. And, you know, when you talk about him being firm, uh, you know, without being abusive— he said to the to the ladies on the view, I came on because it is dangerous, offensive, and disgusting to talk about that the only way that an African American kid can be successful is to be the exception. And I I just think that that's the way Republicans need to communicate. If 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 minorities, African Americans, Hispanic, Asian, what whatever, racial minorities are looked down upon and considered to not be able to make it unless they're the exception, unless um, they're helped by the Democrat Party, by progressives. That's, that's an insult. It's an insult to the opportunity that this country affords for every person. And I'm very thankful that Senator Scott took them on over that, and he did it in a way that wasn't hateful. Uh, it was just straightforward. It was just... Here are the facts about how African-Americans have been able to, to gain uh, position in America and that America is not the systemic racist society that progressives want to paint it to be because when you do that, it causes young African-Americans to lose hope. I mean, think about it. If you're going in and saying to these, to these young African-Americans that they have no hope, if that's what they're being told in colleges and left-wing colleges across the country that there's that they're victims and that the system is against them and that there's no hope instead of pointing to the successes the people that have overcome all of the uh, any racism that's that's come their way 
I mean, again, I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist. I'm saying that it is not systemic. It is not a, we are not a country that is trying to limit the opportunities for minorities. We have a political party in this country ruled by progressives who would like for minorities to believe that the only way they can escape their lot in life is by being exceptional. Tim Scott's pushing back against that. Senator Scott has pushed back against it his whole life. His life is an example of the fact that he's not an exception, but that there are plenty of African-Americans and other minorities who have found pathways to success just as everyone, as every American wants to find. Um, so I appreciate the fact that he, the way that he handled himself on The View, and I think that he's, he's definitely a viable, he's one of the people that I was talking about with uh, Drew McKissick a, a few minutes ago that I think has the potential of being able to break through, maybe in one of these early primaries. When he speaks like this on a national stage, I think not only does he draw a lot of attention, I think he resonates with a lot of Republican primary voters. So we'll see. I mean, all that's going to be hashed out over the next several months, and we'll be covering all of it right here, Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. If you enjoy the show, please tell other people about it. Help me spread the word uh, that there's a program that's different out there for podcasters uh, that you can listen to, get the information, and stay up to date. God bless you, and have a great day. 